0: Go ahead and open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 6. It's interesting uh, to say that uh, week after week as we have endeavored to uh, continue on in our study here in the book of Ephesians. uh, I'm always reminded as we begin a new section that it is good to be reminded. So my introduction this morning is a little bit lengthy as I endeavor to begin this final section of Ephesians to remind us the road that we've traveled. The path that was laid before us when we began this book was a path of uh, one where we were to see the exalted Christ on display. That in chapter 1, we were to see that there was a heavenly witness to the exalted Christ. That what we have in the life, death, and resurrection of Christ and his ascension into heaven is the heavens opened up to us to see that there is a heavenly witness to this exalted Christ. Then in chapters 2 and 3, we we sought to understand the earthly witness to the exalted Christ. That though Christ has gone into the heavenly places, he has taken his humanity to where no humanity has gone before and is exalted above, above all rules and all powers and authority as we will see that he has a earthly witness to his exaltation. <clears throat> that being the church, that being his body, that being the new humanity created in himself. And then as the book turns, or the the letter turns from doctrine to devotion, chapters 4 and 5 point us to the earthly witness to the exalted Christ. This earthly earthly reality to the exalted Christ, that there's not just a witness, but there's a reality in how we all live, and how the body interacts with each other, and how the body lives out their daily lives. So that here at the end of chapter 6, we come to the final section to see that there is a heavenly reality of the exalted Christ. That that as we live out our lives here, as we seek to love each other, be subject to one another, as we're subject to Christ in in the stations that have been ordained by us by God, that there is still a heavenly reality to this. This heavenly reality is played out on this cosmic stage that we're going to see of spiritual warfare. The spiritual warfare is played out in the heavenly places and does so coextensively with us as we fight here. <laughs> As we will see that though it feels and we experience it in our senses. That we don't war against flesh and blood. For all ultimately this all is passing away. But there is a heavenly reality to the exalted Christ. And he is our exalted general and commander. And we look to him as we engage in this warfare. And so follow along as I read for us. Ephesians chapter 6, beginning in verse 10 through verse 17. The word of the Lord says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace, in addition to all, taking up the shield of faith with with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, With with all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit. The grass withers and the flower fades but the word of our God stands forever. Let us go to him for him help. Let's go to him for help again. Oh Lord, how much help do I need this morning to speak your truth? Only you know, Lord. And only you are able to do such things. And so we ask that you would do them by the power of your spirit that your people would be fed, that our hearts would be enlivened, that our spirits lifted, that we may taste for a moment the joys of heaven as we experience your word. We thank you, Lord, and we pray these things in your name. Amen. Well, this morning we we looked to God's word and and we're going to... Uh, be covering this ten through seventeen in multiple parts, and so uh, you'll see in your uh, handouts that this is labeled simply Part One. Part One will consist of of covering largely the first three verses, though we will uh, make reference to what is to come, as well as when we uh, go into uh, further into the armor of God, we'll references to what we've what i've said before and so this morning if you're keeping an outline our outline will be covered under three headings the imperative the conflict and the purpose the imperative the conflict and the purpose the imperative comes there in verse 10, but it falls out of verse 10 that not only do we just have this imperative to be strong but then we're told to put on and to take up and then again having taken up to stand firm to girding our loins to shodding our feet to putting on a breastplate to taking the helmet of salvation to wielding the sword of the spirit taking up the shield of faith as well as with all prayer and petition. So this first imperative, though, comes as largely an umbrella to all of them, for to be strong in the Lord in the strength of his might, fall, everything else falls in line underneath of it. But he begins this section with the first word, finally, finally, he says. In other words, he's saying, to complete my letter. To complete the mission of Christ. Do not forget. There's still some remainder here as, we, as he just endeavored to uh, encourage them in very specific life circumstances. Weighty things to be done as slaves obeying masters, masters being good to their slaves, wives submitting to husbands, husbands loving their wives, and certainly parents being obedient to their children, or <laughs> parents loving their children and children being obedient to their parents. These are daily tasks. These are daily encouragements. And what Paul is saying, these are also daily battles, daily battles of self, daily battles. <laughs> Of the evil one, daily battles of the darkness, the world forces, the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. And so he says, finally, be strong, take up, put on. He begins this final exhortation in a militaristic way. Why do I say militaristic when it's be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might? Well, certainly the armor of God points us in that direction. But these words, be strong in the Lord, do so also. Remember what I said earlier as we talked about Deuteronomy 6 and that paradigm of Exodus going over all of Scripture as a, as a type of what God was, going, was doing and was going to ultimately do consummately in Christ in bringing a people out of darkness and into light, transferring them from the powers of this world into the blessedness of the Son. Well, he did so first in type, and so turn with me to Joshua chapter 1. Or it's not the first time that uh, the Lord encouraged His people with these words of be strong, and what has, what is coupled with this to be strong is the also what's cup was what's what it's what's coupled here in Joshua chapter one. Hopefully, we know the book of Joshua well, but if you don't, let us be reminded that Joshua was the one to. Uh, Uh, take over for Moses. We see Moses not being able to enter into the promised land with God's people because of his falling short there in striking the rock instead of speaking to the rock. And so Moses dies there in verse 1. And after the death, the Lord spoke to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' servant, Saying, Moses, my servant is dead. Now, therefore, arise and cross this Jordan, you and all this people, to the land which I am giving them to the sons, giving to them to the sons of Israel. And he tells them all that he's going to to do for them. And he tells them in verse, and then he tells him in verse six, be strong and courageous. And then in verse 7, only be strong and courageous. And then in verse 9, have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Later on in Joshua, Joshua will speak to the people after the conquest and say, be strong. He, he, through the battles of the Lord, comes to an understanding of what was was being asked of him here. And so Paul, alluding to Joshua 1, we see that God says to Joshua, be strong and very courageous. There in verse 3, we saw every place on which the sole of your foot treads, I have given to you, just as I spoke to Moses as a declaration of God's divine decree. He's saying, every place which your soul or foot treads, I have given it to you. I have decreed that it is yours. Verse 5, he says, no man will be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I have been with Moses, I will be with you. I will not fail you or forsake you. The promise of God's presence. And then in verse 6, the revelation of God's providence. Be strong and courageous for you shall give this people possession of the land which I swore to their fathers to give to them. There we see, as as we see, if we we were to turn back to Ephesians 1, we would see those things laid out also. A declaration of God's decree that we're predestined before the foundations of the world. A promise of God's presence that, that Christ would come and dwell amongst us and continue to do so by His Spirit. And then a revelation of God's providence is that we would take heart and then, ultimately, in chapter 6, that we would be strong and courageous. But we don't just look to Joshua 1 and say, Okay, how are we being, being encouraged like Joshua? Because we don't get encouraged by Joshua through Joshua. We get encouraged by Joshua through Christ. For, ultimately, Joshua is a type of Christ. For it is Christ who will give his people the possession of the land. It is Christ who would be strong and very courageous. It is Christ who will lead his army into battle. This is pointed to us in Joshua 6. Turn a few pages to Joshua chapter 6 because the Lord says this to Joshua. There's some preparatory stuff to take place. There's... Uh, circumcision to have, and uh, a- and they're consecrating themselves to the task. They had to cross the Jordan, and then we find in Joshua six at the beginning of the conquest of uh, Jericho. We have Joshua being visited. Uh, by someone. This is actually just before uh, Joshua 6 and Joshua 5, where uh, they first partake of all the produce of the land, the manna ceases. And it says in verse 13 of Joshua 5, Now it came about when Joshua went was by Jericho, that he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing opposite him with his sword drawn in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or for our adversaries? And he said, No. Rather, I indeed come now as captain of the host of the Lord. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and bowed down and said to him, What has my Lord to say to his servant? The captain of the Lord's host said to Joshua, Remove your sandals from your feet. For the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. Here before their first skirmish in the land. The Lord visits his servant Joshua. To tell him that though you will lead in providence. God is going before you. There is a captain of the host of the Lord. One who Joshua worships. and has not denied it. One whose very presence produces consecrated ground, much like the burning bush. And so we see here the presence of the Lord being presented to Joshua as a man dressed and robed and garbed in uh, a soldier's array and he's come to fight with his sword drawn in his hand. And this was for Joshua to know that we fight the battle and for us to know that we fight the battles God has commissioned for us. There is no battle that we will face in this life that God is not commissioned for us. And as he has commissioned it for us, God himself is also fighting in the war as we trust in him and follow his ways, we can be sure that we will share in his final glory. We're going to see that as we, as we talk more about this warfare or this conflict, we're going to rec- recognize that it is not like any war that we know of in this world or in this age where the general who goes to fight is of the soldier's. Whereas opposed to this one is one where the general has gone ahead, secured the beach, won the country, and has now called his people to hold fast, to keep the ground won, to, to walk in a way worthy of that which has been given to them. So Joshua is to be encouraged in that way, and so we see that it is Christ that has done so, and we in Christ are encouraged to be strong and courageous, this first imperative. To be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. We'll have more to comment on the strength of his might as it relates to us being strong in the Lord but we see that there is that we are called to be strong and courageous because according to God's decree and by his providence there is conflict there will be conflict and conflict with foe with a foe or foes so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. We just got done talking about marriage and the art and and the conflict that we will ultimately have because of our fallen natures—that a, a wife will not desire to submit to her husband, but she'll naturally desire to be over him, and a husband will not desire naturally to love his husband or her, to love his wife, but w- will naturally seek to dominate her, to be a despot and a tyrant. And so there will be conflict, and we must see that the wife is not in conflict with a husband of flesh and blood, but the wife is in conflict with her own fallen nature as well as with the schemes of the devil, that which comports with the devil's desire to undo all that God has done. This idea of the schemes of the devil and then played out that it is rulers, powers, world forces, spiritual forces. These take place in the heavenly places. This isn't heaven as in the heaven above, but the heavenly places as in the spiritual places, the places unseen by human eyes. This conflict takes place in our hearts. And in a spiritual reality. And that this foe goes about scheming to undo what God has done. We we see it in the garden. God creates all things and he creates all things good. He creates male and female and says it is good and gives them into marriage. Gives them to good work. And Satan in the form of a serpent comes and deceives the woman to take and eat. And then she gives to her husband who takes and eats. And in that moment, what was set in motion where you had this order of authority with God, man, and beast, Satan putting it on its head with the beast sitting above the woman who is above the man who then sought to take place of God. This foe is crafty from the very beginning, scheming. If we think that uh, he does not exist, then he's already accomplished his plan. For in this age, it seems, or in this time period, It's not so much that he comes in the form or he comes in his emissaries in the form of false gods where we see it in the Old Testament or even in our our ancient relatives in the time when there was a more recognition of spiritual realities, but he, he comes in the form of atheism. And not just atheism, that there isn't a God, for that is a problem, but And I didn't think about this word before I say it, but some sort of a-demonism, a-Satanism, that there isn't a Satan, that there aren't cosmic forces, that there aren't spiritual realities, that he is to be toyed with, that he is to be a costume to be worn in play and jest. This is not so... This is not the devil. This is not the rulers and powers and principalities that we are introduced to in Scripture. But one thing we must remember about this foe or these foes is that they are first and foremost created. Turn with me to Colossians chapter 1. You may be, uh, this may not be a, total surprise to you, but it, it may come as a timely reminder as we look at this this morning. It says in verse 13, for he, speaking of Christ, rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son out of Egypt and into the land in whom we have redemption the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created. What things were created by him? Both in heavens, in the heavens and on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. These foes in Ephesians 6 are created foes and they're subservient to their creator. Yes, we can't probe the depth of God's mind to know his workings, to know how he ordained all things, even the fall of Satan and those angels, even these Authorities and powers and principalities, but there is one thing we do know for sure, that they serve his purpose. There must be great comfort for us this morning as we wage war against such things in our daily struggle of life. There must be great comfort to know that though we struggle and we struggle mightily, we do so not out of the presence and not out of the eye of the one who created all things and is working all things together, but who created all things for him. And so it is important for us to remember that, th- that as a created f- foe, that they possess no absolute being absolute being that means they are not self-existent and as being not self-existent they are not all-powerful that their power is derived power so there's going to be a display here or a, a a contrast of power you have the powers of these of the schemes of the devil of these rulers and powers we have those powers contrasted with another power the strength of the lord The strength of his might. And so this power is a derived power, and this is seen very clearly in the book of Job. The book of Job, we see that Satan comes before the hosts of heaven and asks for permission to do such things. Though it it is a mystery to understand it completely but it is certainly to be understood that Satan's power is derived and so we rec- we must recognize that part of his power his derivative power is to lower our gaze from the power that is greater than him and to do so by degree Ian de who's been a helpful guide in this last section of Ephesians, wrote a small book called The Whole Armor of God, and he says the devil often seeks to frighten us into submission, shouting at us. Resistance is useless. He pretends to even greater power than he has, presenting a particular temptation to us as utterly irresistible. He says to you, you can't help yourself. It's the way you were made. You need this sin to be happy. What is the point of resisting? You know you're going to lose in the end, so you might as well just give in now. Brothers and sisters, when we're tempted in such a way, we must remind ourselves that that which is testing us is that of derivative power. It's not of absolute power, of limited power of a power that is also waning. For this defeated, this foe who is a created foe is also a defeated foe. Turn again to Colossians chapter 2 to finish Paul's thought. Colossians 2 beginning in verse 13. When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, and has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. The first thing we would do is to recognize when Satan makes little of sin. It's just a little sin. It makes no difference. In the grand cosmic scheme of all things, it's not going to change one thing. But here we're reminded that those transgressions have caused us death. Those transgressions have generated a certificate of death, a debt. Those transgressions also, though, have been nailed to the cross. And when it was nailed to the cross, it says, when he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through." over them through him. He disarmed the rulers and authority. Oh, there's much bark, but there is no teeth in this dog. There's, they have been disarmed. There is really no tearing of the flesh or tearing of the spiritual flesh for we cannot be touched. Paul said, It says it in a similar way in Ephesians, in Ephesians chapter 1. I pray that the eyes of your heart, verse 18, may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe. These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might In all, Paul revisits this theme here at the end of his epistle. Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. What strength? The strength that raised Christ from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Those that have been disarmed by Christ those that have been put in subjection to Christ. And this, in a way, as we read it here, actually, again, hearkens back, alludes back to 2 Kings chapter 6, when the army of the king of Aram had surrounded Elisha, the prophet. Elisha prayed. Elisha had an understanding, but his servant didn't. His servant was afraid. He said, they're all out there. They're going to crush us. So Elisha prayed so that his servant's eyes could see the true battle. And it says, and the Lord opened the eyes, or the servant's eyes, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. And so we see that same illusion here, that though we're presented with that our struggle is not flesh and blood, we struggle not against a foe who is all-powerful. We struggle not against a foe who is victorious, but we struggle against a created, defeated foe. But just because the devil and his ilk are defeated foes does not mean that they are not dangerous. It does not mean that we uh, mock these things, but we hold them in our hearts and in proper place to consider them in reality, to consider them as dangerous. I like a good hunting show. I I like a good hunt, though I don't get to do them as much. But as far as big game goes, I, I haven't been able to do that. But maybe once, and that wasn't very fruitful. But I like a good hunting show because most of those are fruitful. And what I've as I was reading this and studying it, it made me think that Satan is like a fatally wounded animal, one of those. Big game animals, and even uh, and and when as it relates to these animals, when the animal is shot and it's fatally wounded, you'll notice that the hunters don't immediately rush upon that animal. Even when it's on the ground, sometimes it's in a position where they they walk up to it uh, quickly, but most of the time they approach with caution, and I've found that they do so for at least. Three purposes. One, they don't want to spook the animal and have to chase it. Two, they don't want to prolong its suffering in that it having to chase it, it'll suffer longer, and they want to put it out of its misery. But the third reason is because it's still dangerous, that any life within it, the animal possesses is still dangerous. It could still move its head if it has antlers and puncture you. If it's, a, if, it's a, if it's a predator animal, it can still take you in its clutches in its dying moments. So it is with Satan, though he's fatally wounded, though he's bound, though his uh, weapons have been removed in, in their ultimate purpose, he's still dangerous. He's still to be watched out for. He's still to be considered as a force in this world, for it says that he's the prince of the power of the air. He's the one at work in the sons of disobedience. And so we are called to be dedicated in our life, to be dedicated in our soldiering. And it's interesting that Paul ends with these military words because he just got done talking about marriage and family relations and domestic uh, relationships. And he addresses it in such a seemingly uh, manly way, masculine way. Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. And we as men should hear the call and, and take up the call of the Lord to be strong and then be strength and be strengthened in His might. But you may, if you're a woman here, be thinking that it's not very womanly to be a soldier to wage battle and war, but Paul gives no quarter for that. It's not that he doesn't recognize the role that, he, that is given to women. It's not that he doesn't recognize the difference between male and female here, but it is the intensity of the fight, whether in the home or in the world, that is to be focused upon. It is the reality of the struggle. In Corinthians, when he tells them to be strong, he tells them to be strong and act like a man. You wrote that to the church because he's trying to get across something that we're to be resolved in this, that we're not to take it lightly in our struggle, that we're not to consider that it's just a thing, it's no big deal. But we're to fight as dedicated soldiers. And that this comes at the end of Paul's letter because the Lord knows that we are prone to trust our eyes. We are prone to trust our senses and that we, what we cannot see, we think does not exist. This is what we're prone to believe. This is what man in his natural state believes. If I can't see it, it doesn't exist. If I can't feel it, it must not be there. The Spirit through Paul is saying, don't believe such a lie. The Spirit elsewhere reveals that Satan prowls around, that this is in an effort to be undetected, to be forgotten, as I said before, so that our flesh grows complacent and desires grow. Because he says here that we're up to stand firm, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day. What is this evil day that Paul speaks of? I think he's speaking of it in multiple levels. First, he speaks of it in the day as in the age. He says this is an evil age, earlier in Ephesians. But he, put, he speaks of it as an evil day because now he's talking about the struggle. How long will this war last? Well, it's an evil day. Though it may seem long and toilsome in our fight. In the pale or in the, in the realm and perspective of eternity, it is an evil day. But I think he also speaks of it as a day, as a day when, when as our flesh grows complacent, our desires are so our evil desires may grow, so that in that evil day, sinful desire will meet sinful opportunity and will crash upon the believer. That evil day is is the day that many of us have met in the past or are meeting now, where... We're tempted to believe the lies of the evil one. Uh, that day of, um, that we read in Deuteronomy where we're not to tempt the Lord as they did in Meribah or it's, it's it eluding me what it says in actually Deuteronomy 6, but it's the same day where they tempted the Lord at the rock and they were thirsty and they grumbled and complained. The tempting of the Lord said, the, Meribah means is the Lord even among us?" And so that is the lie. That is one of the lie lies that Satan brings. Is is, is one is the Lord is, is Satan even real? Is the Lord even real? And then for the believer, is the Lord even among us? Is the Lord even? Lord over your life, whether you're saying that in your obedience to Christ, or whether you're saying that in the troubles that have come upon you. We're reminded that in John 16, Christ, in order to encourage his disciples, said, in this life there will be trouble. He says, but fear not, for I have overcome the world. So we are to not count it strange when we find such difficulties in the ways which are good. For when a man looks to righteousness, he leaves the kingdom of darkness, and the tyrant cannot endure this with patience. We saw that. Are you, you, you see that if you've ever read Pilgrim's Progress? Apollyon is the tyrant. Apollyon is, is the Lord over all the cities of men. Certainly the cities of destruction with, with, with which Christian is fleeing from. And all along the way, he can't have it. He can't have that Christian had, flee, had, had, had left the city of destruction. And he sought to oppose him in every way and in every step. But we as dedicated soldiers recognize that though in this life there will be trouble that there is provision and this is the provision that's been given us the armor of God. few things to note of is that this provision, this armor, it says put on the full armor of God that our Provision is complete. It is a complete provision for the task. That we lack nothing in Christ to wage this battle, to fight this struggle, to be strong in the Lord. Because in in symbolism, the armor is the strength of his might. The armor is complete provision. The second thing is that the armor is alien armor. It doesn't say, take up your armor. It says, take up the full armor of God. We're not asked to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps, but humbly submit to our commander. That in given this armor being alien to us, it's the armor of God, that we're also given armor that has been tested and proven. We'll be able to see this more in later sermons, but suffice for this morning is that our armor has been proven and tested by the very one who stands victorious. When the warrior comes home and is greeted by the parade of of, uh, celebrating his victory, he goes into his palace and he takes off his armor. So if Christ is seated in the heavenly places, he has taken off his armor and he has given it to us. We are to know that this is the armor of God so that we may encourage that we don't stand in our own strength. We don't stand in our own covering. We stand in the covering of Christ and Christ has bore all temptation and has been victorious. The Lord is has provided. There were two more points, or one more point to this, but I don't think I have time for that this morning. So I want us to know that as we conclude this morning, the very final point had to do with prayer. The One of the questions out of the Heidelberg Catechism is question 127. And it comes after the final petition of the Lord's Prayer. And the final petition of the Lord's Prayer is, Do not bring us to the time uh, of trial, or do not uh, uh, lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And the question is, what does this sixth petition mean? It means by ourselves we are too weak to hold our own, even for a moment And our sworn enemies, the devil, the world, and our own flesh never stop attacking us. And so, Lord, uphold us and make us strong with the strength of your Holy Spirit so that we may not go down to defeat in this spiritual struggle but may firmly resist our enemies until we finally win the complete victory. Let us pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, we give you praise this morning that we are sure to know that you have given us victory in Christ. Oh, Lord, but we are also sure to know that this conflict that you have providentially orchestrated and commissioned for us is one of constant attacking, one that should not be lacking in, in prayer one that requires true faith. Help us, Lord. Help help those in our midst who think Satan is but a caricature, is a costume, is just a ghost story. Convict the hearts of those, Lord, who can only believe what they see and not believe what they hear from your word, that they may be delivered out of the domain of darkness and brought into the kingdom of God. Help us, Lord, as your people, as your soldiers, to fight the good fight in your strength knowing that we're clad in your armor, that we fight against a created and defeated foe, though very dangerous, and that we do so not without your presence. We thank you, Lord, and we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.